Trigger warning. This episode includes depictions of rape, suicide, and other violence. Veronica, and I'll be your sleep guide tonight. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Dead Asleep Pod. Our topic today is going to be Alaskan killers. Proportional to its population, Alaska is, without a doubt, the most popular state among serial killers, with 15.65 serial killings per 1 million inhabitants. A total of 51 serial murders took place in Alaska between 1900 and 2014, with more than half of those occurring between 1980 and 1990. We're going to be focusing on Israel Keyes, Robert Hansen, and James Del Ritchie. But first, let's begin by taking a deep breath, and then another. And as we breathe, we're going to begin to quiet our minds, thinking only with anticipation about the stories we're about to hear. As you breathe, relax your hands and your feet, then move that relaxing feeling to your legs and arms. Release any tension that you have in your limbs. And at last, Let's let our torso sink deep into our mattress. One more deep breath, and we're ready to begin. Israel Keyes was born in Richmond, Utah on January 7, 1978, to Heidi Keyes and John Jeffrey Keyes. He was the second of 10 children born to a large family whose parents were Mormon expats from Torrance, California. There, Keyes and his siblings were homeschooled and taught Mormon beliefs until 1983. After leaving the Mormon faith, Keyes' father moved the family to an obscured plot of land north of Colville, Washington, in Stevens County, when Israel was five years old. Isolated from society, the Keyes family lived in a one-room cabin located at Rocky Creek Road, where they lived without electricity or running water. In Colville, the family attended services at a church called The Ark, which practiced white supremacist Christian identity ideology. Keyes later described The Ark as an Amish-like church environment. During this period of attending The Ark, the Keyes family befriended the neighboring family of Chevy Kehoe, who was later convicted for a 1996 triple murder. The family attended another church in Colville called the Christian Israel Covenant Church that taught British Israelism as a doctrine. That miscegenation was abominable and deviant. The Anglo-Saxons were to rule over the perceived inferior races and that Keyes later alleged to have been militia-like. 
For years, some of the Keys children have been forced to sleep in a tent due to their cabin's small size. To survive, the Keys children were made to hunt their food, chop firewood, and work on local farms to support the family. As a hobby, Keys hunted anything with a heartbeat and freely admitted to skinning a deer alive with his peers at the church. As a result, Keys was ostracized and actively avoided by various youths who attended the church Israel Covenant Church, with one girl recounting that Keys' presence made my skin crawl. As a youth, Keys admitted to shooting at the neighbors' houses with his BB gun, starting fires in the woods, breaking into houses for fun. He also occasionally broke into houses with other youth who subsequently avoided him after witnessing Keys shoot an animal. On one occasion, Keyes stole several guns from his neighbor's residence and was forced to apologize by his parents after their discovery of the cash. On occasion, Keyes, who stood six feet two inches tall by age 14, would also sell stolen guns to local adults. Around this time, Keyes' parents provided shelter to personal friends in the presence of their son and daughter and Keyes' sister, Keys tied a cat to a tree with a parachute cord and gored it with a 22 revolver. The cat then began circling the tree before crashing into it and vomiting. Keys allegedly chuckled before noting that the boy, who later informed his father, had vomited in response to the incident. Keys had an epiphany in which he felt that he was different from his peers, who ran away from him. Upon this realization, he kept his increasingly antisocial behavior to himself, withdrawing socially due to being ostracized. In addition, Key's mother began to notice some troubling signs in Key's during this period, when he began tuning into various radio stations and different things. By his teenage years, Key's had become a skilled and proficient carpenter, building his first wooden cabin for his family at age 16. He also began working for a Colville contractor from 1995 to 1997. Around this time, Keyes kept a journal from early childhood littered with Bible scriptures, documenting daily sins for which he felt shame, such as lusting after his girlfriend. Soon thereafter, the family relocated to Smyrna, Maine, where they collected sap for maple syrup production in a mostly Amish community. Due to their mother's religious zealousness, the Keys children were forced to secretly flee their parents to watch movies with friends and were forbidden to learn musical instruments as they were against God. Sometime during this period, Keys renounced his former Christian faith. On one occasion, Keys declared his atheism to his parents, both of which he had previously made tireless and constant efforts to please. After an intense argument, this led his parents to evict their eldest son from their residence, shunning him for apparent blasphemy. They then instructed his younger siblings, who looked up the keys, to never have contact with him again. Keys then developed an inordinate interest in Satanism with plans of committing a ritualistic murder. In the summer of 1997 or 1998, Keyes allegedly committed a sexual assault on a teenage girl who had been tubing with her friends down the Deschutes River in Mopin, Oregon. Although this was not his first sexual assault, Keyes admitted that he stalked her from a tree line before very violently sexually assaulting the girl, 
whom he estimated to be between 14 and 18 years of age by knife point. Originally planning to murder her as part of a satanic ritual, he's let her go in the river tube he had abducted her from. On July 9, 1998, Keyes promptly relocated and soon enlisted in the United States Army in the state of New Jersey, where he served as a specialist in Alpha Company, 1st Battalion, 5th Infantry Regiment. He passed a rigorous month-long preliminary course for United States Army Rangers training. He was stationed at Fort Lewis, Fort Hood, and spent most of his time abroad while stationed in Sinai, Egypt. Here, Keyes befriended several soldiers, informing one of them that he would like to kill him upon angering Keyes. While at Fort Lewis, he served on a mortar team in the 1st Battalion, 5th Infantry, 25th Infantry Division. Former Army friends of Keyes have noted his quiet demeanor and habit of keeping to himself. On weekends, he was reported to drink heavily, consuming entire bottles of his favorite drink, wild turkey bourbon. Keyes was also a fan of the hip-hop duo Insane Clown Posse and displayed posters of the musical act in the barracks. In February 2001, Keyes was arrested for driving under the influence in Thurston County. Pursuant to a plea agreement, he was fined $350. Keyes was awarded an Army Achievement Medal for his meritorious service as a gunner and an assistant gunner from December 1998 to July 2001. Keyes was then honorably discharged and he relocated to Nia Bay, Washington. Keyes lived in the Macaw Reservation community of Nia Bay on the Olympic Peninsula. In 2007, Keyes started a construction business in Alaska called Keyes Construction while working as a handyman, contractor, and construction worker. Keyes targeted random people all across the United States to avoid detection with months of planning before he committed a particular crime. He specifically went for campgrounds and isolated locations. He claimed to only use guns when he had to and preferred strangulation. This was due to the pleasure he derived from witnesses losing consciousness in the struggle. He claimed to not kill children or parents of children, primarily because of his daughter, whom he feared finding out about him and his crimes. However, police and FBI investigators were skeptical of this claim and suspected Keyes of killing several teens or children. He is believed to have committed his first murders as a teenager between 1996 and 1998 in and around Colville. Two teen girls were killed in two separate incidents along with one of the girl's mothers. He did not admit to any murders during his three years in the United States Army, but did admit to twice attempting rapes of women, once when stationed in Egypt and another time on leave in Israel. He is believed to have resumed his killing spree in 2001 following his discharge. He's admitted to investigators that he killed four people in Washington state and claims that he was the subject of an active investigation by the state police and the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI. He did not have a felony criminal record in Washington, although he had been stopped on two occasions for minor driving-related offenses. Authorities were reviewing unsolved murder and missing persons cases to determine which, if any, may be leaked to Keyes. 
Keyes is a suspect in a series of 2007 crimes by the Boca Killer near Boca Raton, Florida. In three cases, a mother and child were kidnapped from a shopping mall. In two of the cases, the mother and child were shot and killed and their bodies abandoned in their vehicles. In the third case, the mother and child were released unharmed after several hours. Though the kidnapper wore a mask and sunglasses, the surviving victim caught glimpses of his face and described him as a tall, athletically built man with long hair and generally matching Key's description. Key's confessed to at least one murder in New York State. In late 2012, authorities had not determined the identity, age, or sex of the victim or when and where the murder may have occurred, but regarded the confession as credible. Keyes had ties to New York. He owned 10 acres and a dilapidated cabin in the town of Constable. He also confessed to committing bank robberies in New York and Texas, and the FBI later confirmed that Keyes robbed the community bank in Tupper Lake, New York in April 2009. He also told authorities that he burglarized a Texas home and set it on fire. Authorities claim Keyes may have murdered a woman believed to be Deborah Feldman in April 2009 in New Jersey and buried her near Tupper Lake, New York. He also admitted to murdering Bill and Lorraine Courier of Essex, Vermont. Keyes broke into the Courier home on the night of June 8, 2011 and tied them up before driving them to an abandoned farmhouse where he shot Bill before sexually assaulting and strangling Lorraine. Their bodies have never been found. Two years prior, Keyes hit a murder kit, which he later used near the Courier home. After the murders, he moved most of the contents to a new hiding place in Parrishville, New York, where they remained until after his arrest. Keyes' last confirmed victim was an 18-year-old Samantha Koenig, a coffee booth employee in Anchorage, Alaska. Keyes kidnapped Koenig from her workplace on February 1st, 2012, took her debit card and other property, sexually assaulted her, then killed her the following day. He left her body in a shed and went to New Orleans, where he departed on a pre-booked two-week cruise with his family in the Gulf of Mexico. When he returned to Alaska, he removed Koenig's body from the shed, applied makeup to the corpse's face, sewed her eyes open with fishing line, and snapped a picture of a four-day-old issue of the Anchorage Daily News alongside her body, posed to appear that she was still alive. After demanding 30000 in ransom, he's dismembered Koenig's body and disposed of it in the Matanuska Lake, north of Anchorage. Keyes is a suspect in the murder of Jimmy Tidwell, an electrician who disappeared near Longview, Texas on February 15, 2012. During a bank robbery in Azle, Texas on February 16, 2012, about 170 miles from Longview, the culprit believed to be Keyes wore a white hard hat similar to Tidwell's. An FBI report stated that Keyes burglarized 20 to 30 homes across the U.S. and robbed several banks between 2001 and 2012. He may be linked to as many as 11 deaths in the United States, potentially even more victims outside the country, his most infamous being his murder in Anchorage, Alaska. Keyes planned murders long ahead of time and took extraordinary action to avoid detection. Unlike most serial killers, he did not have a victim profile, saying he chose a victim randomly. 
he usually killed far from home and never in the same area twice. On his murder trips, he kept his mobile phone turned off and paid for items with cash. He had no connection to any of his known victims. For the courier murders, Keyes flew to Chicago, where he rented a car to drive 1,000 miles to Vermont. He then used the kill kit he had hidden two years earlier to perform the murders. Having read Mindhunter from his youth and continuing to meticulously study serial killers, Keyes idolized Ted Bundy and felt that he shared many similarities with him. Both were methodical and felt as though they possessed their victims despite their difference in victim choice and modus operandi. He even went as far as to imitate Bundy's court escape before being seized by guards immediately. Keyes also admired and studied other serial killers, but actively shunned media attention for his crimes as he was fearful for his family and being labeled a copycat for his admiration of Bundy and other murderers. Keyes also called Dennis Rader a wimp for apologizing in court and showing remorse for his crimes. In addition to expressing admiration for serial killers that haven't been caught. When asked in an interview about Robert Hansen, Keyes replied enthusiastically stating, yeah, I know all about him before continuing. I probably know every single serial killer that's ever been written about. It's kind of a hobby of mine. When FBI agents informed him of the Aurora Theater shooting, Keyes had also expressed mild interest in the mass murderer's perpetrator, James Holmes. After Koenig's murder, Keyes demanded ransom money and police were able to track withdrawals from the account as he moved through Southwestern US. During that time, the police controversially refused to release surveillance video of Koenig's abduction. Keyes was arrested by Texas Highway Patrol Corporal Brian Henry and Texas Ranger Stephen Rayburn in the parking lot of the Cotton Patch Cafe in Lufkin, Texas on the morning of March 13, 2012. Investigators had circulated a lookout bulletin for the suspect's car, which had been used at ATMs to withdraw money from Koenig's account. Keyes' car matched his description Lufkin Police Department patrolman Chris Nash had previously identified Keyes' rental car and spotted Keyes in proximity. Keyes was stopped after he drove slightly over the speed limit. His vehicle was searched after officers spotted cash stained with bright ink, indicating a dye pack from a bank robbery. Koenig's ATM card and cell phone were also discovered in Keyes' car. Keyes was subsequently extradited to Alaska, where he confessed to the Koenig murder. He was represented by Alaskan federal defender, Rich Kurtner. Keyes was indicted in the case, and his trial was scheduled to begin in March 2013. While incarcerated, Keyes spoke to investigators several times over a period of months. He cooperated to an extent, confessing to some of his crimes, and stated a wish to be executed within a year. He said he wanted to avoid publicity due to the negative attention his young daughter might face, but largely stopped cooperating after his identity was discussed in the media. On Wednesday, May 23, 2012, Keyes attempted to escape during a routine hearing. He used wood shavings from a pencil to pick his cuffs. Police used a taser to subdue him. While being held in jail at the Anchorage Correctional Complex on suspicion of murder, 
Keyes managed to conceal a razor blade in his cell. He was not allowed razor blades being on the security restrictions of using an electric razor under supervision. He died by suicide on December 2, 2012, via cutting his wrists and attempted strangulation. A suicide note found under his body consisted of an ode to murder, but offered no clues about other possible victims. In 2020, the FBI released the drawings of 11 skulls in one pentagram, which had been drawn in blood and found underneath Key's gel cell bed after his suicide. One of the drawings included the phrase, we are one, written at the bottom. The FBI believes the number of skulls correlates with what are believed to be the total number of his victims. Keyes has been the subject of multiple books, podcasts, and the documentary, Method of a Serial Killer, released in 2018 by the Oxygen Channel. Robert Hansen. Robert Christian Bose Hansen was born in Esterville, Iowa at Coleman Hospital on February 15, 1939 the elder of two children to an American mother and a Danish father. The family moved to California in 1942, but returned to Iowa in 1949, settling in Pocahontas. His mother was Edna Margaret Peterson, his father Christian Hansen, and they owned a bakery in the town, and Robert was employed at that bakery. In his youth, he was painfully shy and had a stutter, and severe acting left him permanently scarred. Not receiving the attention he wanted from the attractive girls in school, Hanson grew up hating them and nursing fantasies of cruel revenge. Throughout childhood and adolescence, Hanson was described as being quiet and a loner. He had a difficult relationship with his domineering father. He started to practice both hunting and archery and often found refuge in these pastimes. In 1957, Hansen enlisted in the United States Army Reserve and served for one year before being discharged. He later worked as an assistant drill instructor at a police academy in Pocahontas, Iowa. There he began a relationship with a younger woman. He married her in the summer of 1960. According to Ancestry.com, one of his wives' names was Carolyn Jean Willis. On December 7, 1960, Hansen was arrested for burning down a Pocahontas County Board of Education school bus garage, revenge for his unpopularity in high school. He served 20 months of a three-year prison sentence in Anamosa State Penitentiary. During his incarceration, he was diagnosed with manic depressive and period schizophrenic episodes. The psychiatrist who made the diagnosis noted that Hansen had an infantile personality and was obsessed with getting back at people he felt had wronged him. Hansen's wife filed for divorce while he was incarcerated. Over the next few years, Hansen was jailed several times for petty theft. In 1967, he moved to Anchorage, Alaska with his second wife, whom he had married in 1963, with whom he had two children. In Anchorage, who was well-liked by his neighbors and set several local hunting records. In December 1971, Hansen was arrested twice. 
first for abducting and attempting to rape an unidentified housewife, and then for raping an unidentified sex worker. He pled no contest to assault with a deadly weapon and the offense involving the housewife, and the rape charge involving the sex worker was dropped as part of the plea bargain. Hansen was sentenced to five years in prison. After serving six months of his sentence, he was placed on a work release program and released to a halfway house. In 1976, Hansen pleaded guilty to larceny after he was caught stealing a chainsaw from an Anchorage Fred Meyer store. He was sentenced to five years in prison and required to receive psychiatric treatment for his bipolar disorder. The Alaskan Supreme Court reduced his sentence and he was released with the time served. Hansen is believed to have begun killing around 1972. His modus operandi was to pick up a sex worker in his car and force her at gunpoint to his home where he would rape her and he would then fly her out to a secluded area and hunt her as if she were wild game before shooting or stabbing her. On June 13, 1983, Hansen offered 17-year-old Cindy Paulson $200 to perform oral sex when she got into the car. He pulled out a gun and drove her to his home in Muldoon. There, he held her captive and proceeded to rape and torture her. She later told police that after Hansen chained her by the neck to a post in the house's basement, he took a nap on a nearby couch. When he awoke, he put her in his car and took her to Merrill Field Airport, where he told her that he intended to take her out to his cabin. Paulson crouched in the backseat of a car with her wrist cuffed in front of her body and saw a chance to escape when Hansen was busy loading the cockpit of his airplane. While Hansen's back was turned, Paulson crawled out of the backseat, opened the driver's side door, and ran towards nearby Sixth Avenue. Paulson later told police that she had left her blue sneakers on the passenger side floor of the sedan's back seat as evidence that she had been in the car. Hansen panicked and chased her, but Paulson made it to Sixth Avenue first and managed to flag down a passing truck. The driver, Robert Yount, alarmed by Paulson's disheveled appearance, stopped and picked her up. He drove her to the Mush Inn, where she jumped out of the truck and ran inside. While she pleaded with the clerk to phone her boyfriend at the Big Timber Motel, Yount continued on to work, where he called the police to report the barefoot, handcuffed girl. When Anchorage Police Department officers arrived at the Mush Inn, they were told that Paulson had taken a cab to the Big Timber Motel. APD officers arrived at room 110 of the Big Timber Motel and found Paulson still handcuffed and alone. She was taken to APD headquarters where she described the perpetrator, Hansen, and when questioned by APD officers, denied the accusation, stating that Paulson was just trying to cause trouble for him because he would not pay her extortion demands. Although Hansen had several prior run-ins with the law, his meek demeanor and humble occupation as a baker, along with an alibi from his friend John Henning, kept him from being considered as a serious suspect. Detective Glenn Fluff of the Alaska State Troopers had been part of a team investigating the discovery of several bodies in and around Anchorage, Seward, and the Matanuska, Susitna Valley area. The first of the bodies was found by construction workers near Eklutna Road, 
The body dubbed Akletna Annie by investigators has never been identified. Later that year, the body of Joanna Messina was discovered in a gravel pit near Seward. And in 1982, the remains of 23-year-old Sherry Morrow were discovered in a shallow grave near the Nick River. Floth believed all three women had been murdered by the same perpetrator. Floth contacted the FBI special agent John Douglas and requested help with an offender profile based on the three recovered bodies. Douglas thought the killer would be an experienced hunter with low self-esteem, have a history of being rejected by women, and would feel compelled to keep souvenirs of his murders, such as victims' jewelry. He also suggested that the assailant might stutter. Using this profile, Floth investigated possible suspects until he reached Hansen, who fit the profile and owned the claim. Supported by Paulson's testimony and Douglas's profile, Floth and the APD secured a warrant to search Hansen's plane, vehicles, and home. On October 27, 1983, investigators uncovered jewelry belonging to some of the missing women, as well as an array of firearms in a corner hideaway of Hansen's attic. Also found was an aeronautical chart with 37 little X marks on it, hidden between Hansen's headboard. Many of these marks matched sites where prior bodies had been found. Others were discovered later at the locations marked on Hansen's murder map. When confronted with the evidence found in his home, Hansen denied it as long as he could, but he eventually began to blame the women and try to justify his actions. Eventually confessing to each item of evidence as it was presented to him, he admitted to a spree of attacks against Alaskan women starting in 1971. Hansen's earliest victims were girls or young women, usually between the ages of 16 and 19, and not prostitutes unlike the victims who led to his discovery. Hansen is known to have raped and assaulted over 30 Alaskan women and to have murdered at least 17, ranging in age from 16 to 41. Of these 17 women, Hansen was only formally charged with the murders of four, Sherry Morrow, Joanna Messina, Akletna Annie, and Paula Golding. He was also charged with the kidnapping and rape of Cindy Paulson. Once arrested, Hansen was charged with assault, kidnapping, multiple weapons offenses, theft, and insurance fraud. The last charge was related to a claim filed with the insurance company over the alleged theft of some trophies. He used the proceeds to purchase his plane. At trial, he claimed he later discovered the trophies in his backyard but forgot to inform the insurer. Hansen entered into a plea bargain after ballistics test returned a match between bullets found at the crime scenes in Hansen's rifle. He pleaded guilty to the four homicides the police had evidence for and provided details about his other victims in return for serving his sentence in a federal prison, along with no publicity in the press. Another condition of the plea bargain was his participation in deciphering the markings on his aviation map and locating his victims' bodies. Hansen confirmed the police theory of how the women were abducted, adding that he would sometimes let a potential victim go if she convinced him that she would not report him to the police. He indicated that he began killing in the early 1970s. 
Hansen showed investigators 17 grave sites in and around South Central Alaska, 12 of which were unknown to investigators. There remained marks on his map that he refused to give up, including three in Resurrection Bay near Seward. Authorities suspect two of these marks belong to the graves of Mary Thill and Megan Emmerich, whom Hansen has denied killing. The remains of 12 of a probable 21 victims were exhumed by the police and returned to their families. Hansen was sentenced to 461 years in prison without the possibility of parole. He was first imprisoned at the United States Penitentiary in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, and in 1988, he was returned to Alaska and briefly incarcerated at Lemon Creek Correctional Center in Juneau. He was also imprisoned at Spring Creek Correctional Center in Seward until May 2014, when he was transported to the Anchorage Correctional Complex for health reasons. Hansen died on August 21, 2014 at age 75 at the Alaskan Regional Hospital in Anchorage due to natural causes from lingering health conditions. There are various documentaries that include the story of Hansen, including FBI Files, Crime Stories, The Alaska Ice Cold Killers, Hidden City, Mark of a Killer, The Butcher Baker, and Very Scary People. James Dell Ritchie. James Dell Ritchie was born on November 4, 1976. He grew up in Anchorage's Wonder Park neighborhood and attended East Anchorage High School, where standing at six foot three, he was noted as being a standout athlete, having played on the 1994 state championship football and basketball teams alongside future professional athletes. Ritchie was a close friend of Quincy and Bobby Thompson, whose family hosted him often throughout his teenage years. Ritchie scored 1,200 on his SAT and was recruited by the West Virginia University football team in 1994, one day following the death of Quincy. He subsequently fell out of contract with the Thompson family. After a semester at WVU, Ritchie dropped out and returned to Alaska and became involved in drug dealing and dog fighting in 1995. By 1998, Ritchie had adopted the street named Tiny. Over the following seven years, Ritchie was arrested a number of times, predominantly for drug-related offenses. He was arrested for the last time in Alaska in 2005 when he was apprehended while committing a home invasion with plastic handcuffs and two handguns in his possession. After serving two years in custody, he resided in Alaska, during which time he acquired a Colt Python handgun. In 2013, Ritchie lent his handgun over to an acquaintance and moved to Broadway, Virginia, where his parents had been living at the time. Save for a pair of moving violations, Ritchie had no court appearances and was observed by the police as being a law-abiding citizen. Following a breakup with his girlfriend, Ritchie returned to Alaska in March of 2016. He reacquired the Colt Python from his acquaintance and moved to Airport Heights, where he stayed before moving to Penland Parkway Trailer Park in Anchorage. Richie sought mental health treatment, though the Anchorage Police Department could not ascertain if he had received a diagnosis. 
Richie committed his first two confirmed murders during the early morning hours of July 3, 2016, when he shot 20-year-old Brianna Falsey and 41-year-old Jason Netter Sr. The two bodies were discovered together along a bike path near Ship Creek by a bicyclist at 7.45 a.m. Netter was noted for having extensive run-ins with the law, often regarding his drug-related activity, as well as child support issues with his two daughters, one of whom changed her name. Falsey was homeless and had fallen into substance abuse, as well as denying intervention offered by her adoptive mother, Marcella Falsey. The nature of Foisy and Netter's relationship, if any, was not determined or disclosed. On July 5th, the murders were ruled a double homicide by the APD. After reviewing hours of surveillance footage, the APD released images of two unidentified men who were persons of interest for the investigation. The third recorded murder committed by Ritchie took place 26 days later on July 29th shortly after 3 a.m. Richie shot 21-year-old Travion Kendall Thompson, the son of his childhood friend, Bobby Thompson, multiple times while he was riding his bicycle home from work between Dubin Avenue and Boland Street in East Anchorage. Three girls who had spotted Richie lingering in the woods near Boland Street through their window just prior heard the gunfire and witnessed him grabbing Thompson's bicycle. Richie rode the bicycle away from the scene and brought it to his home, where it was spotted but not identified as being involved in a crime by witnesses. The police arrived at Boland Street, where they found Thompson, who was pronounced dead at the scene shortly after. Under Sergeant Salomar Marquiswitz's direction, witnesses were interviewed and enough testimonials were given that a composite sketch of the suspect who would later be positively identified as Richie, was created. Shortly after Thompson's murder, the Alaskan State Crime Lab confirmed that the same murder weapon used in the Foisey and Netter's murders were also used in Thompson's murder. During the early hours of August 28th, Richie shot dead 34-year-old Kevin Turner and 25-year-old Bryant D. Houston in Valley of the Moon Park. An unidentified female passerby who was walking through the park discovered the Houston's body along the trail at 1.42 a.m. Shortly after arriving, police discovered Turner's bullet-ridden body under the pavilion in the park. Turner, suffering from schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, was homeless at the time as he had not fared well at assisted living facilities. DeHuston, a notable environmental activist in Anchorage, was thought by his father Gordon DeHuston to be doing a late night bicycle ride on their new Schwinn to meet a friend when he stumbled upon the fatal encounter between Richie and Turner. There was no relation between DeHuston and Turner. In the police report, the APD noted that very little evidence was left at the scene of the crime. However, the Alaskan State Crime Lab confirmed that the weapon used to kill Turner and DeHuston had also been used in the earlier homicides. Recognizing a modus operandi displayed by the string of murders, the APD released an advisory notice for citizens to avoid isolated trails after dark. Following the murders of Turner and DeHuston, the FBI was brought on to assist in the investigation. 
On September 6, Anchorage Mayor Ethan Berkowitz hosted a press conference that asserted that gang violence was largely responsible for the record-breaking number of murders in the city, though he refused to acknowledge the evidence lending credibility to a serial killer theory. The FBI offered a $10,000 reward leading to the apprehension of the suspect responsible for Thompson's murder while refusing to comment on any connection to the other murders due to the concern that acknowledging that a weapon tying all the crimes together would run the risk of prompting the killer to dispose of it. The joint APD and FBI task force subsequently received upwards of 175 tips over the following two months, at least one of which pertained to Richie. Following Thompson's murder, his mother, Mandy Primo, had conducted an independent investigation to discover her son's killer. After searching homeless camps in low-income neighborhoods, Primo claimed to have located an armed Richie near Alaskan Regional Hospital in October 2016. Primo came to have contacted the APT lieutenant and reported that she had found her son's killer. She claimed to have contemplated over the phone confronting Richie directly, which a lieutenant advised against, as he was armed and her infant child was in her car. Richie was killed near the corner of Fifth Avenue and Cordova Street in Anchorage during a gunfight with a 38-year-old officer, Arn Saleo, and 34-year-old Sergeant Mark Patsky of the APD on November 12, 2016. Officer Saleo, while responding to an unrelated report of unpaid taxicab fares, spotted Richie walking down the street at 4.30 a.m. Saleo pulled up alongside Richie and asked him to stop, presumably to ask if he had witnessed the crime. Richie continued walking, prompting Saleo to repeat the question over his megaphone. Without warning, Richie turned, walked towards Saleo's vehicle, drew his Colt Python and opened fire on Saleo, hitting him six times, which resulted to damage to his bones, intestines, and liver. Saleo exited his patrol car and returned fire while also engaging Richie in a physical confrontation. Simultaneously, Sergeant Patsky at the K-9 unit spotted the confrontation and fired upon Richie, who was killed by a number of gunshot wounds. Saleo was taken to an area hospital where he was moved out of the intensive care unit after seven hours of surgery. Following Richie's death, the Colt Python in his person was sent to the Alaskan Crime Lab where it is confirmed to have been the murder weapon responsible for the deaths of Brianna Foisey, Jason Netter Sr., Travion Kendall Thompson, Kevin Turner, and Bryant DeHewson. The investigative task force had not considered Richie a suspect due to his lack of run-ins with the law over the decade prior. After 78 hours of investigation and contacting the victim's families, APD Chief Chris Tolley had a press conference in which he announced the connection between the homicides and the attempt on Officer Saleo's life. Additionally, Lieutenant John McKinnon confirmed that the investigation had revealed a connection between the murders, but the task force withheld it from the public out of concern that Ritchie would have disposed of the Colt Python had he realized it was being sought. The weapon, which had been purchased in 1971, was not registered to Ritchie. The original owner was questioned by the APD with the intent of discovering how it found its way into Ritchie's possession. Richie was immediately identified as being the assailant responsible for Thompson's murder due to the witnesses and the identification of his photo identification, 
matching the composite sketch. While the APD continued to collect evidence implicating Richie's involvement and the other homicides tied to the Colt Python, the FBI looked to trace Richie's activities in Virginia and Nevada prior to returning to Alaska in 2016. On April 26, 2017, APD spokesperson Renee Olstad announced that sufficient probable cause was determined to confirm that Richie was solely responsible for the five murders and, therefore, a confirmed serial killer. Investigators had traced the Colt Python handgun's whereabouts back to confirm that it had found its way into Richie's possession prior to the murders of Foise and Netter in July 2016. With Olstead's announcement, the case was closed. A month later, on May 23rd, the Anchorage Police Department released dashcam footage recorded just prior to Richie and Saleo's confrontation, as well as details pertaining to Richie's personal history. Thank you for joining me tonight. I hope you're fast asleep. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Dead Asleep Pod and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Sweet dreams.